I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. The year was 1892, and the People's Grocery in Memphis, Tennessee, was giving their competitors a real run for their money. Three of the store's owners and managers, Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and Will Stewart, worked hard providing a good living for their families. Now, this shouldn't be an unusual story in the land of supposedly self-made men, where hard work and opportunity spell the keys to success. But this story took a different turn when McDowell and Stewart stood their ground against a slew of men with guns who were invading their store. Folks who didn't want to compete by the rules of the market, but by the power of the mob. You see, McDowell and Stewart, as well as Thomas Maas, who wasn't even there at the time, were all black. It wasn't enough that these three were arrested for fighting to defend their own store. But while in jail, they were abducted by a mob, savagely tortured and lynched. Now, white-owned media contributed to the horror like the aiders and abettors that they were. Even the New York Times contributed to the lies that justified the lynching. They reported without attribution that Moss, who was in fact a respected postal worker in Memphis, was actually, along with his colleagues, bad Negroes. Now, this wasn't actually the N-word that they used, but you get the idea. In fact, the paper led with white fears of revenge and black violence. In doing so, they followed a familiar storyline that linked crimes against black people to alleged crimes by them. But one courageous journalist refused to be cowed from telling the truth, Ida B. Wells. She was the godmother of Moss's children, and she wrote a scathing rebuttal to the lies that linked lynching to black crime, especially to sexual assault of white women. Days after the editorial's publication, her newspaper offices were destroyed by an angry white mob, and it forced her to leave her hometown permanently. Now, despite the continued threats to Ida B. Wells' life, her work would go on to become a counterpoint to the lost cause lies, the reconciliation narratives that converted the facts of Confederate treason into the myth of an honorably fought civil war. It also revealed journalism's complicity in the deadly rise of Southern rule. The lost cause ideology that denies the deeply racist histories of the Civil War and its many legacies is resurgent today. It can be seen in right-wing efforts to install an official narrative of racism's limited reach. Ida B. Wells' intellectual descendants are those who resist this whitewashing here and now. Those who tell the truth over and against the media's both sides reporting that too often abets racist reality. We see this both sidesism in the media's contemporary coverage of the big lies that are being used to suppress truth-telling and voting and protest. 
Reporting on such racist projects functions in much the same way that white journalists provided cover to racial terrorism and lynchings in the 19th century. They're reporting without challenging the master narratives. We desperately need courageous truth-tellers like Ida B. Wells, those who refuse to bow to the conventions that cover up rather than expose racial power. And Soledad O'Brien is one such journalist who has paid her dues and has the receipts. Soledad O'Brien is an award-winning documentarian, a journalist, a speaker, an author, a philanthropist, and the CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions. Since leaving CNN nearly 20 years ago to start her own company, Soledad has used her media platform to tell empowering and honest stories. Her social media platforms seek to hold mainstream media accountable and to set the record straight exactly the kind of necessary revisionary work that we need so desperately in this moment of viral misinformation. I can't think of a more qualified person to help us think through how the media are playing this moment and what we should have a right to expect from them. Man, there's so many ways that this is truly an episode about intersectionality, both intersectionality in terms of looking at our two institutions and how they are coming together to create a particular kind of harm right now. And we are both Black women in institutions that have historically done harm, and yet we have the nerve to try to tell the truth in these institutions. So I want to start with what this has earned us, right? The dubious designations. So I'll tell my story, you tell yours. Here, Here's mine. These days I am, let me see, uh, a threat to Western civilization. My work is racist. I want to make white men the pariah of our society. Oh, 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 I'm un-American and a divisive insurgent. So that's the character I play on right-wing TV. Wow. What character that's, that's, do you play? A threat to civilization? I feel like that should come with some <laughs> large award. Like, no, that should be huge, big. right? That's, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I fear I don't play so big. I think I'm bitter. I think I'm mad. I am an angry black lady, or as my best friend likes to say, well, angry half black lady. Uh, uh, <laughs> obviously I'm racist and I hate white people, except my husband who I like a lot. And I just don't like the media because I used to work at CNN and I'm mad at CNN because I don't work there anymore. I think that's a very good reading of what the narrative is. There it is. Okay, so now tell us uh, just a little bit about how you plot where you came from, who you are, what you saw growing up to being this person that inspires uh, such apoplectic reaction. I know my story is basically being born at the tail end of the civil rights movement to parents who saw themselves as race men and women, who saw themselves as passing on the baton, making it clear that our role in, in this society is not to accept the narrative, not to drink the Kool-Aid, but always to be articulate about the, our condition and not to settle, you know, for any old line about what equity, you know, should look like. It's got to be real. What's the sort of liner notes for your trajectory? 
I think for me, um, I remember when I was, it, it, my parents got married at a time when interracial marriage was illegal in this country. My dad was white. My mom was black. And so they had to go to D.C. from Maryland, from Baltimore to get married. Uh, and then when they moved to Long Island, no one would sell us a house because, of course, nobody wanted black people to move in. And I think my parents strategy was very much, you know, so what you do is you kind of just like assimilate your way in and, you know, you take out of this community what you can. The schools are good here. You know, we're going to work hard. Yeah, I'm perfectly fine that no one will ever date you here. That's OK. That's a good thing. And just reap what you can and know that when you go off to college, you'll have a more diverse and more maybe even interesting experience. And so I think a lot of their strategy was, you know, just don't um, we're just, you know, let's like blend in a little bit more. And, and again, not because we're scared of people, but it will allow us to get everything we need out of this, like sticking out, being a pain in the ass, raising your voice. It's, it's not going to be particularly helpful, but I, I think for me, there came a point where you begin to, I mean, I believed a lot of the stuff that I, I learned about journalism. I love journalism and I, I, I believe journalism can open doors and tell stories and can be empowering. And then sometimes you just see this did, especially in our, our political coverage, it's just mediocre. And, and you see people who are very mediocre get ahead and it starts thinking, you start thinking not, not, not ahead in like a job I want, just ahead generally. And you yeah. think it's so disappointing to me. Um, and then I think you start saying, well, you know, maybe we should say something, maybe the, you know, I'm 55 now, so we don't, we don't need to put our head down. We don't need to try to get in into this play. We don't need to be well-behaved. Nobody cares. Who cares? So when we're talking about pointing things out that people may not want to hear or see, we're both in institutions that want to think of themselves in particular ways. There's mythology around, say, objectivity in the media in the same way there's mythology around objectivity um, in the law. And in, in ways, we are both somewhat similarly situated in that we are often saying the emperor has no clothes. We're often you know, finding ourselves building our interventions off of the ways that the mythology actually produces harm. So I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, the current controversy over critical race theory. I think, I hope our listeners know that Texas, for example, voted to end requirements that public schools include material on women's suffrage, the civil rights movement. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Elsewhere, uh, teachers are being fired, school districts are being fined for teaching what's called divisive concepts. And you know, when you look at the measurement of divisiveness, that is enough to warrant this draconian response. It's usually, it makes white students feel bad, or it tells a narrative about the country we live in that's not all celebrated. So I'm curious about how you are seeing the role that media has played, have played um, in advancing this. Can, can we say that the media are complicit in this? Oh, 100%. How so? I think that the media has been incredibly helpful to uh, this narrative. And I'll give you some very specific examples. Um, you look at someone like Peter Baker from the New York Times, who wrote one of the very first current articles, as you know, like all of a sudden, right? Critical race, as you know, because- After 30 years, <laughs> you know, right? Suddenly, right, right, suddenly like knocking critical. on your door. Right? And the article that he wrote, he didn't really take the opportunity to do what I think he would have done if it had been a different topic, right? He he wouldn't have assumed that what these people who are opponents of critical race theory were telling him were, were true. He would have said, "Here, well, here's what it is. 
So every single time you see uh, like one of those crazy ladies yelling at a school board meeting, right? She's not complaining about critical race theory. You don't like the person who's leading the diversity conversations at your kid's high school. Guess what? Also not critical race theory. You're mad because there's a, a now an effort at work to get more black women into leadership positions in the C-suite. Guess what? Also not critical race theory. And I think the media had this tremendous opportunity to say, whoa, 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 what, what people are describing as critical. That's that's actually not critical race theory. In fact, let's turn to some experts who are experts in this thing called critical race theory and ask them. I mean, it's it's incredibly arrogant, right? That that you'd frame it around the people who are trying to undermine even the discussion around critical race theory. When I explain it to my kids, sometimes I, I'd say, you know, imagine if there was someone who's telling us, well, you know, this is an orange. And someone's like, no, no, no that's not an orange. I'm a, I'm a farmer. I, I actually, I farm oranges. I, this is an orange. No, no. You know, we've decided anything that's spherical and orange is going to be called an orange. You're like, right. But no, that lacrosse ball, that's not an orange. Like you can say it's an orange. You can call it. It doesn't make it an orange. It's a lacrosse ball in a similar color. And that's where we are. And the media had a chance to say, hold on, let's explain this conversation. It's quite complicated. Critical race theory is actually quite complex and complicated. And it's one of the reasons that it's studied at higher levels that kindergartners, in fact, are not learning it. It's complex. What I've been seeing and what you confirmed is that there are perhaps two problems simultaneously happening. So first of all, there's the disinformation campaign, an organized, fully intentional strategy to demonize a particular group or ideas based on a political agenda that they think they can advance through that. So there's the disinformation. And then there's the fertile ground that mainstream media have created so that the disinformation isn't met with an interrogation of the disinformation, it's met with an interrogation of the people or the ideas who are the target of the disinformation. So it's like these two things that are coming together. When I think back, I think of like ACORN. Remember ACORN was a nonprofit organization. They've been involved for over 40 years in registering people to vote and community organizing. And the right wing went after them and basically told a bunch of lies that ultimately destroyed them. Or or let's think about Shirley Sherrod, right? A civil rights family extraordinaire. Uh, Breitbart went after her with a doctored video and she ended up losing her job in the Obama administration. So I'm curious about these two um, dimensions of it. First, the misinformation, and then the failure of mainstream media to develop the tools to turn the, the prism away from the target and back to the source of the targeting. It's just shocking to me that this is such a tried and true strategy. We should stop being shocked, right? Because yeah. I think real failure is in the media not recognizing a thing that has now been run through the playbook a hundred times, right? I mean, I think Donald Trump actually did a really good job of of creating that and, and executing on it, right? Confuse people every day, come back, do it again, again, never back down. And so you have misinformation, you can just lie and you can, you know, if you try to have a serious, thoughtful, accurate conversation in some ways, you're more challenged by reporters, um, even if you're trying to get it right. So I, I think you're exactly right. The disinformation comes out, but media 
pretends that it's not a thing, that it doesn't exist, right? That there's not some agenda around this conversation. It's just a bunch of moms who've suddenly decided to go out to the school board. Well, we know that to not be true. And then we elevate experts and complete non-experts. Somebody who studied, who actually is an expert in critical race theory is literally on the same level as Mary Jane Doe, who's mad because she will not have her third grade daughter learning critical race theory. Those, those two people are not, they're not equals at all. And, and yet the commitment of the media to this both sidesism creates an expectation of a pattern of practice of making them be the same. There is, you know, what critical race theory really is and what the mad mom has been told it is. And the media feel apparently no requirement, no- Make it clear. Yes, to to actually interrogate that. Now, why wouldn't that story be, Mary Jane Doe is wrong, right? If, If I were doing that story, I'd be like, here's a woman who's screaming at the school board and she's wrong. She's just wrong. Everything she's saying is wrong. I agree. I think the media often when it comes, as you well know, when it comes to race and it comes to these complicated conversations, one, nobody has an interest in talking to experts. And number two, you know, there's a certain amount of arrogance in it that they can just navigate through it. They don't need to defer and try to learn. It happens all the time. And so, yeah, it's been very disappointing because you see it run again and again and again. And you see it to this day. There are people who have said they didn't think that Joe Biden was duly elected president, who then get invited on Meet the Press or Face the Nation. I wonder if people uh, have a sense of how dangerous and repetitive this tactic is, particularly when it comes to race. So I remember how the media helped destroy Reconstruction by telling the big lie of the lost cause, by telling the big lie that African-Americans were not fit to become true democratic partners. And these lies were basically amplified by you know, folks who considered themselves liberals. Um, I remember learning about Thomas Nast, who was initially a supporter of the union and a critic of slavery. And then he used a Harper's Weekly to galvanize anti-racist sentiment among a Northern readership. That's what led in part to the abandonment you know, of reconstruction and and throwing black people back under the bus, framing them as criminal, framing them as rapists, framing them as unfit for civilization. So we've seen this happen before. My worry is that because we don't know this history and because our media literacy, particularly when it comes to race, is so underdeveloped that they just are tearing a page out of the Reconstruction book and playing it. So critical race theory is un-American. We've heard that before. People of color voting, uh, they're unqualified. We've seen that before. This is happening again and again and again, and the media seem to be just doing the same thing. How is it that they're able to continue this despite the the lives that are threatened, the security of the democracy being basically on life support right now? The media is not liberal. The media is full of the very same biases that you're talking about. I think the media doesn't even have a good understanding of media literacy honestly, right? They just don't know all the ways in which they've been tricked. I think it was a really good example. I'll use the New York Times again. I thought a lot of Maggie Haberman, I think she's a good reporter sometimes, but often she just quotes the president when President Trump, you know, and you're like, right, but what he's saying is a lie. 
And she'd be like, right, but he said it and he's the president. So I guess it's, a th-. And you're like, right. But you, you realize you're being used, your platform's being used to propagate lies. Also, you're quoting people who have testified that they lie to reporters. Like, I find that so crazy. I truly believe in a hundred years, we're going to have the New York Times writing an article about how they're apologizing for all the things they got wrong. But the media just fails at this all the time. I, I think in a lot of ways, I blame the print media because they have more time and more deadlines and more ability to talk to more people on cable. Often, you know, you're kind of live immediately and you got to put a mic in front of somebody and do the best you can on the fly. Uh, It's really been disappointing. But look at the media coverage of Afghanistan. There's not this objective conversation about it, for sure. We talk about policing. It's beginning to change, but it's always historically been. But the police say and the police told us this was the guy. And the police said that what happened was, you know, they feared for their life, right? Those were people who got absolutely were able to shape the narrative while the journalism was saying we are objective and objectivity is so important to us. But but the police chief has a statement that we're about to run because we know that they you know, this is the the word of God when it comes to something that's happened in the community, as opposed to saying they have a vested interest in what is happening here as well. They are part of this narrative. So we need to address them critically as we would anybody who's part of the story. I see this a lot with the mothers of Say Her Name that we work with. You know, we have looked at the stories that are told about the killing of their daughter and just how the initial story, the official story, becomes this path-dependent intervention. So they have to build all of their justice demands against the initial way that the media just took whatever the the police had to say about why this woman was killed with her six-month-old child in the backseat of the car who wasn't the target of anything. It's just, you know, they are able to create the truth and then our efforts are always as against their Uh, take on the truth. One of the things that leads me to wonder is how racism contributes to this problem and gets in the way of people's ability to see the damage that this reliance on, you know, one side and the other side actually created. So, you know, we've been talking about it at at the 30,000 feet level, but you have specific stories about trying to Uh, do precisely what implicitly we're thinking needs to happen, like interrogate what's missing, uh, put things in front of people that they haven't thought about. So I really want you to take us back to your work at CNN and in particular, your effort to cover, for example, the talk that black parents have to give their kids. So, oh my gosh. So, so we were doing a doc series called black in America and it ended up being a very successful, wildly popular doc series. We did it for nine years. And I remember for our very first black in America, one of the pieces of this very first six hour doc was a look at families that were having the talk with their, usually their sons, sometimes their daughters, but often their sons. And I remember I was at the television critics association. So I'm on this little dais and they're asking me, so how did you come up with the characters and the documentary and what was uh, the most interesting thing to you? And, and then someone asked me, well, what was your biggest takeaway? And this was in 2008. I said, you know, the biggest takeaway, what I found most interesting was that regardless of socioeconomics, we had looked at a well-off black family, a middle-class black family, a black family that was so poor they were being evicted while we were 
there to interview them. I said, you know, the interesting thing was when it came to the talk, the conversation about policing, they almost sounded like they were reading from a script. Like they were living these very different lives, but the, the almost verbatim saying the same thing. If you are stopped by the police, here's what you need to do, right? So I tell that story to the reporters who are doing a story on this, this doc series. And as I come off the stage, my boss's boss's boss, so this was the head of CNN Worldwide, said to me, that's just not true. Now, I had spent 18 months working on this doc. So I was like, no, it really is. <laughs> Actually, he said, white people have the same conversations with their kids. This is a man who paid for nine years of, of black in America. That shit was expensive. Let me tell you. And like good dude, if you met him, you'd be like, he is a good, like he's a good guy. And yet it was so interesting, right? Because it was nothing about my reporting. He wasn't saying, I feel your data is wrong. He was just like, in my experience, in my lived experience, I just don't want to believe this thing you're saying, right? It was so weird. And I said, I think uh, that it is different. I think that white people will tell their kids, if you're stopped by the cops, don't be an asshole, right? Don't, don't be a jerk, behave. And black parents are saying to survive this interaction, here's what you need to do. But I guarantee you white parents aren't saying to survive this interaction. They're not. And he said, it's just not true. And don't tell that story again. And so I didn't. I like my job. Wow. I like my job. Wow. A lot. And I think we deal with that a lot, right? The good meaning person who just feels like, no, that can't be the case. It can't be racism. It has to be that people just are making a mistake. You just don't understand. No one was being rude to you. You just don't understand. That kind of person is an interesting person to have to deal with. In some ways, it's easier to deal with the person who's just straight up like, listen, I do not think black people should be here. At least like, OK, I can deal with that. But the well-meaning person who really believes a thing and yet at the same time, the same guy, I'll tell you a story about him when I was at CNN, right when Anderson Cooper's show was starting. I remember, um, oh, my gosh, they did a diversity day and they had seven seats on the stage, six white dudes and one white woman. Well, that's almost like like re, like almost like a joke right you'd be like oh my god this can't a, a mess and i remember saying to him uh we just had this conversation about diversity and this whole thing i said you know i think if you would require shows to have diverse staffs as opposed to a diverse slate of what you're interviewing i think that would make a big difference and he said yeah, but what we don't want to do is, you know, impact the quality. His assumption is if I have to hire diverse people, we're going to have lesser quality. We're talking about TV news. We're not building nuclear reactors where it's, it's creative. It's who, you know, it's your access to information. It's how you tell stories. It's hard to even measure that stuff. And it just was such an interesting tell, right? Like that was his core held belief. He said this in front of an audience of a you know, couple hundred people. And here is in fact the problem, like you were saying, sometimes the folks who are consistent with their racism are easier to deal with than our so-called allies, whose denial about the extent to which these issues actually are embedded in our institutions are the hardest ones to deal with. And I, I would say in this moment, what we're seeing is not just sluggishness around allyship, but actually their sympathies for some of the arguments that are being made on the other side. This is the same character that may say, well, you know, they have a point about cancel culture. They have a 
point about their claim that diversity is reverse discrimination, if they don't see the problem, they are likely to infer that our saying that it's a problem is the problem, right? So now we're in this moment where anti-racism is the new racism. This is the story that the right wing is telling, and it is one that our liberal allies are not really interrogating, I would say, because there is a part of them that may believe that, well, there is something to that argument. And this is partly the product of the media, not itself being diverse, not itself interrogating some of these questions, not itself asking what role does racism, white supremacy play in even establishing what we think is a legitimate story to tell and what we think isn't a legitimate story to tell. So I'm wondering um, what, uh, first of all, do you think the difference in a decade has made, especially now that we've had, you know, the awakening, you know, the reckoning around George Floyd, did that penetrate the media in any way or has time provided the means by which the media are now looking more carefully at how their own biases construct reality by shaping what's newsworthy and what is not. I think what has changed is there are more conversations, right? Your average white dude anchor person is having a conversation about George Floyd. And years ago, that just wouldn't happen, right? You'd have uh, the black or Latino anchors would be sort of raising it and maybe they go do a special and it's Black History Month. I mean, Black in America was a great example. Um, but I, I do think that the challenge for the media is that they still want to center themselves in these conversations, right? It requires you centering other people. It requires you to say, you know, whose voice, whose point of view are we trying to elevate? Are we always going to have the point of view of the person who's on the sidelines of the parade? The number of times that we would have someone cover what was happening on a reservation, a Native American reservation, without actually talking to Native American people, right? There's a reporter who's, here's what's happening here. But like, you could just move that person out of the way and say, well, just give the mic to the lady over there. I don't need you to be the the prism through which we understand this community. These people here could just tell us what they want to tell us. And I think you have to push very hard and you have to be very aggressive about constantly saying, if we're talking about millennial voters, should we have an analyst who's telling us about a study of millennial voters or should we just get an actual millennial voter? Right. And it's a very different way of looking at it. Let's talk about being a woman of color, doing the pushing in this industry. In 2020, Syracuse University published a survey that showed that 82.6% of news directors were white. 92% of TV general managers were white. 84.6% of radio news workforce folks were white, and it goes on and on and on. So that's one picture, um, sort of the top down, who is running the show, who's making the decisions. That's one way we can capture it. But are there insights from your own experience of this that help us understand? When I started working at Heroin TV in San Francisco, it was my first on-air job, first reporting job. And I remember walking down the hallway. I was new and I was in San Francisco and I, I was from New York. So I was on the West Coast. I didn't really know anybody. And I remember walking down the hall and everybody's in a little, you know, like a little group. And I'm awkward. So I'm trying to like get, hey, you know, and they're talking about the new affirmative action hire. 
but by seeing how everybody stops, you real, you know, you realize like, oh, it's obviously me. And on one hand, you want to sit there and say, I was one of the youngest producers at NBC News and da da da. da. Here's what I've done and I've accomplished this. On the other hand, you're just like, there's no winning, right? There's no resume that you can whip out and say, actually, let me show you what my, here's my degree from Harvard. There's no winning. There's no winning. You will never win on that. And I think that's the part that's depressing because you just can't, you can't win. When I started working at CNN, I had come from NBC News where I had anchored Weekend Today. So I wouldn't say I was a star, but I'd been an anchor of like a big network show. So I was you know, kind of well-known. I had just had my twin boys. So I had four kids under four and I was sent to Thailand to go cover oh. this. Um, the producer met me and said, so I know you're one of these stars for CNN, but let me tell you something. If you can't handle this, I'm going to put you on a plane home. So I just had my fourth child. I was 35 years old. And I was like, you know, the Who part are you talking to? it was so, I was so upset. I am a crier. So I cried. You can't call anybody. You can't complain about it. But I just remember thinking like, right, his whole thing was, I, I don't think that what you've accomplished has any value. I don't think that you're good at your job. I'm not sure how you got here. And now you've been dumped in my lap. And I just want to be very clear. I'm not your babysitter, but I will, you know, I will carry you to the airport if I feel like you're not living up to what I need. I mean, that's what he was saying. It was so upsetting to me. And later, years later, um, the guy reached out to me because he wanted a job with my company. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? I love these I said, stories. I don't know if you remember this. You, we had this conversation. He said, oh, I was very nervous and I did it. You know, but yeah, no, it was very much like I'm the victim here. Um, and obviously we didn't hire him. But I think it's so typical for women, especially women of color, to be told all the time, like, I don't know who you are. I'm pretty sure you didn't get here on any kind of talent at all. And now I've been saddled with you. And so let me tell you, I think that happens constantly, you know, and, and people just can't believe that someone might actually be really good. And and the problem of, of sort of being part of a group to which these doubts are consistently attached is that the success of one of us does not become capital for the rest of us. Then you become the exception. Then you become but the, the one. Failure. The failure is everybody. The failure is everybody. And, and, and this is what just just really works my nerves about what's happening now because the complaint against racial justice, education, critical race theory is that it creates group identity and group think and group uh, guilt without any recognition of the fact that it is the groupness to which we are subject. That is the reality of racism and sexism. This asymmetry that you just point out, our successes are individual, our failures are collective. That is what happens to us. This is not what happens to men. It's not what happens to white people. And it's certainly what makes intersectional uh, vulnerability so much more salient for us in, in these workforces, which then brings me to, so um, what are we doing about it? And I really want to hear about your journey to Soledad O'Brien Productions. So oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, well, I was covering a John Bonet Ramsey story and I remember looking around being like, I do not need to be here. I, I cannot believe it. Like this is I, I'm not an expert in the story. We're just standing here and doing something that's not meaningful. Like it's a terribly sad story, but there are 90 people on this story. 
this is insane that I'm here. And so I sort of knew in that moment, like, oh, I need to stop doing this because there's so much of what we're doing that I thought was just not worthy of, you know, there's so many better, more complicated stories about what it means to be alive in America today, as opposed to salacious and sad stories. So when we started our production company, um, it was weird because I'd never run anything. Uh, and so I really didn't have a good, I wish I'd taken some accounting classes. You know, when you, when you start spending and losing your own money, suddenly you become PhD. Wait a minute. Let me see that budget again. Uh, but I learned pretty quickly and I liked really being able to elevate stories that I think are important. We did a, a show for BET called Disrupt and Dismantle that walked through very specific ways in which communities were dealing with environmental racism, you know, and being able to say, okay, so what the heck is environmental racism? Like that doesn't even make sense to people sometimes. And showing a woman who's, who's, it's been allowed to, to have shingles dumped in her backyard she said to me, she said, I have, it's called shingle mountain. You know, people say that and you're like, I'm sure it's a big old pile of shingles in your backyard. That's terrible. It was 10 stories high. I was like, Oh my God, it's a mountain. It's a mountain. She was not exaggerating. And to be able to dig in and explain how race intersects this conversation about where people are illegally dumping or what parts and what communities are sort of always taken advantage of. If this happened in this neighborhood, let me promise you, they would never become shingle mountain. It might become shingle pile till the weekend. And then there'd be people who were fined and then there'd be legislation to make sure that never happened again. And so why are certain people always so vulnerable? We wanted to dig into that. And, and that was a really interesting series. So so now that I I have your expertise, let me ask you then, you know, we started with the disinformation about racial justice and education, the attack on truths that are inconvenient, the specific effort to demonize critical race theory and the way the media have been complicit in this. Do we have a, a direction, a strategy that you would suggests that those of us who are caught in the crosshairs, you know, of this can think media can help with? Yeah, I would say I don't think cable's ever going to see it because part of the point of cable is the debate. And sometimes it's a faux debate, right? They'll put on a flat earth guy and a NASA guy. And you're like, well, that's insane, right? And everybody knows it's insane. They know it's fake, but but it's, it's entertainment. Uh, I think local media is really good and really helpful. And that's sort of the way to do it, to support local media, because they actually have the best interests of the community at heart. Cable's not in it to inform you. They don't really, you know, it's, it's to get eyeballs and, and their real competition is social media, right? That's what, that's who they're competing. They need a salacious headline because they are competing with all that other stuff you're reading on social media. What's going to make you click on the New York times versus click on uh, TMZ, you know? So I've sort of given up on cable in a lot of ways and, the audience for news media is this. The average age of a viewer. Get take a guess. What's the average age of the viewer on CNN? Uh, forty-eight. Sixty-seven. Average. That is the age of their viewership. Average. Yes. So I do the show that I do. We our our average viewing age is something like fifty-eight. Which, by the way, I think is kind of old. And they're like, oh my goodness, fifty-eight. That's amazing. That's actually that's actually kind of promising because because although we're getting slaughtered 
on Fox and not well defended on MSNBC and there's shoulder shrugs at CNN. I guess what this is suggesting that we need to go where the other viewership is. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we started at the, at the top of our conversation, which has just been wonderful, just flew by with how you are cast um, in the, the land of the folks who are scandalized by your, your existence. And I'm wondering, given your trajectory, what is it that you say to the young principal Soledad who's coming up now? What do you tell her? <laughs> you know, learn the system, understand how people operate and how things work and, and figure out like what makes you happy and what you want to do. I just never have been a journalist who felt like, you know, I was willing to sell my soul to do stuff. I just not. Maybe next year I'll change my tune and I'll be willing to sell my soul. But I just wanted to do certain stories and that would make me happy to be able to do the work that I wanted to do. And I think there's a lot of great opportunities out there for storytellers. And I don't think they all have to be, you're going to work here or here or here or here. That's it. It's just not the case anymore. Right. I mean, yeah, it's kind yeah, of laughable. Yeah. You look at the number, for example, of you know, the show that I did when I was at CNN, we had like a hundred and somewhere between 135,000 would be like an average day, you know, 135,000 viewers in the demographic, 135,000 people who have any kind of social media presence, billions, right? Like that's not even a big number. So I think that there's a tremendous shift and learning how to tell stories and learning how systems work is really important. Never, you know, never sort of dismiss that. That's really, really important. Soledad O'Brien, you are a national treasure. It's just been a delight to have this conversation with you. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julie Sharp Levine. This episode was co-produced with Ashley Julian, with support provided by Destiny Spruill, Rebecca Sheckman, and the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.